Hey folks, Chad here. We're gonna get the show rolling in just a moment, but first I wanted to let you know about a couple of things. First up, this Friday, April 5th, our very own Chris Lackey and Rachel Lackey will be hosting a Spock marathon, a Spockathon, on BBC America. They are, of course, the hosts of Rachel Watches Star Trek, and they'll be lending their insights to some Spock-centric Star Trek episodes and the movie Star Trek III The Search for Spock. That all starts at 5 p.m. again on BBC America, Friday, April 5th. Don't miss it, and if you're listening to this after the 5th and did miss it, you should be ashamed of yourself. Also, we wanted to let you know that front of the show and weird author Edward M. Erdelak has some new books for you to check out. I'm talking about his acclaimed weird western series Merkaba Rider, which follows a Hasidic gunslinger tracking the renegade teacher who betrayed his mystic order of astral travelers across the demon-haunted southwest of the 1880s. Part Joe R. Lansdale and part Sergio Leone with echoes of Robert E. Howard's Solomon Kane and a healthy dose of Lovecraft mythos. You can pick up Merkaba Rider, The Mensch with No Name, and the previous installment, High Plains Drifter, on Amazon in print or Kindle right now. We'll link out to those titles in the show notes. Okay, that's enough business for now. Let's get to our new episode on In Amundsen's Tent. HPPodcraft.com Travelers, says Richard A. Proctor, are sometimes said to tell marvelous stories. But it is a noteworthy fact that in nine cases out of ten, the marvelous stories of travelers have been confirmed. Certainly no traveler ever set down a more marvelous story than that of Robert Drumgold. This record I am at last giving to the world in 1922, with my humble apologies to the spirit of the hapless explorer for withholding it so long. But the truth is that Eastman, Dahlstrom, and I thought it the work of a mind deranged. Little wonder, forsooth, if his mind had given way, what with the fearful sufferings he had gone through and the horror of the fate which was closing in upon him. What was it, that thing, if thing it was, which came to him, the sole survivor of the party which had reached the southern pole? Those are the opening paragraphs from the story In Amundsen's Tent by John Martin Leahy. This is a weird tale of Antarctic exploration that predates Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, and Lovecraft Mm -hmm. personally expressed a fondness for it, which is why we're talking about it here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. You know, I'm not so sure about that Richard A. Proctor quote we heard in the first paragraph there. Mm -hmm. Proctor was an English astronomer from the 19th century, and that quote asserts that in nine cases out of ten, the marvelous stories of travelers have been confirmed. In nine cases out of ten? Yeah, that kind of stuck in my craw, too. So people are coming back talking about sea serpents and unicorn men and partying with mermaids, and that's that's been confirmed nine-tenths of the time, I guess. Unicorn men? Yeah, you know. Some, somebody comes back from even a, a carnival cruise trip, <laughs> half of what they say is going to be a lie. <laughs> you know, the food was actually pretty good. Oh, I, I did all right in the casino. I always just bring a certain amount to lose. I never gamble more than that. <laughs> Peeing in the pool is not something I ever do. All true. All hey, true. who was that amazing reader we heard at the top? Why, that was Edward E. French, Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award-winning special effects makeup artist. Oh. Uh, Mr. French has a YouTube page that contains a full reading of this story, mm-hmm. as well as a number of other great short stories in the macabre tradition. Please go enjoy his readings now. We'll link out in the show notes. Thank you, Edward. So glad to have you on the show. I've listened to his recordings, and they're they're great. Check them out. Now, a few of the stories we've covered lately have been from something Farnsworth Wright notes in the July 1930 issue of Weird Tales. It says H.P. Lovecraft writes that he has gone through his file of Weird Tales from the beginning and has picked out the following stories as having the greatest amount of truly cosmic horror and macabre convincingness. This story in Edmondson's tent is among those Lovecraft selected alongside, you know, the Nightwire, uh, the Canal, our story from last week, The Floor Above. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it has some definite macabre convincingness. Yeah. Which, by the way, is also the name of the fragrance I'm wearing right now. <laughs> is that a dead thing or the love of my life? Macabre convincingness. <laughs> I read the story in H.P. Lovecraft's favorite weird tales, that book we keep referencing that was edited by Douglas A. Anderson. Yes. And in his foreword, he writes, in Amundsen's tent, I'm calling it Amundsen, Admonson. I thought it was Amundsen. Amundsen, I believe is correct. Although in Edward's uh, full reading, he says Amundsen. Oh. So I think there's, you might be able to pr- pronounce it a few different ways, but we'll say. Yeah. In Amundsen's tent was published in the January 1928 issue of Weird Tales. At the time of publication, the famous Norwegian polar explorer Roald Amundsen whose team had been the first to reach the South Pole on the 14th of December 1911, was still living. And his unsuccessful 1925 attempt to fly over the North Pole in an airplane was fresh in the public's imagination. Hmm. In reaching the South Pole, of course, Amundsen beat, by one month, Captain Robert Scott, yep. who, who died with his team on the return journey from the Pole. Yeah. That's a little context. I think you can draw a direct line from this story to At the Mountains of Madness, which was published about eight years later. Mm-hmm. And then to Who Goes There, which was published a couple of years after that and was used as a source material for The Thing. Yeah. That, that awesome movie. Definitely, this is the embryo of what was to become The Thing. But all these stories are born out of the public fascination with Antarctic exploration of the time. You know, these were the last places on land for man to explore, and they were as alien and unforgiving as another planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what do we know about this author? We, again, don't know much about John Martin Leahy. He was born in 1886 in Washington State. He published three novels in the 1920s Draconda and Drome. For the two books, they were serialized in Weird Tales, and his third novel, Zandara, was published as The Living Death in Science and Invention magazine. Yeah, there's a very good article on this story in Amundsen's Tent by Bob Gay on the website famousandforgottenfiction.com. Hmm. It's, a, it's a reprint of the story that also features some analysis, and in that he writes, Although we don't know a lot about Antarctica, the setting of this particular story, we know even less about the story's author. Most agree that John Martin Leahy was born in 1886, died in 1967. There seems to be a general agreement that he worked as a writer and artist. I read elsewhere that he did illustrations for some of his own stories. Mm -hmm. Most all magazine indexes show Leahy as a fairly regular contributor to Weird Tales between 1923 and 1928. Research has failed to find any mention of what he did for a living before his brief foray into writing, nor have we been able to determine what he did for the remainder of his life. So we're getting all the mysterious authors this year. Yeah. Pretty crazy. I like it. Let's dig into the mysteries of the story. The first bit is from the account of Captain Amundsen and how he left a note in a tent for Captain Scott to find when he got there. Then we get an account from Captain Scott, who says he found a tent about two miles from camp, 1.5 miles from the pole. In it, they find a record that five Norwegians had been in that tent, and he leaves a note that he had actually made it there. Yeah, these are quotes that I think are to establish that both explorers visited this tent and to set the stage before the story actually begins. These are kind of more of an epigraph. Uh-huh. Uh, again, in Bob Gay's afterward on famousandforgottenfiction.com, he writes, the two sections of text that appear at the beginning of the story are actual quotes from the written works of both Amundsen and Scott. The first section is from Amundsen's 1912 work, The South Pole, an account of the Norwegian expedition on, in the Fram, 1910 to 1912. The second is excerpted from Scott's final journal. Uh, A careful reading of this second section will make it clear that Scott is listing what was contained in a record he found in the tent, and the date given at the end of the list of names was part of the record. He then goes on to say that he left a note of his own. And uh, Gay writes, although it really has nothing to do with the story, I'd always wondered what Amundsen might have had to say to Scott in the letter mentioned in the Amundsen quote at the beginning of the story. Because it's basically like, hey, I win, you know, I got here first. Yeah. Uh, It says, while looking for information on Scott's journey to the pole, I found the following text. Dear Captain Scott... As you probably are the first to reach this area after us, I will ask you to kindly forward this letter to King Hakon the Seventh, uh, the Norwegian king. Mm-hmm. If you can use any of the articles left in the tent, please do not hesitate to do so. 
The sledge left outside may have be may be of use to you. With kind regards, I wish you a safe return. Yours truly, rolled Amundsen. So that's the note. That is some shady shit, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. I would say he kind of killed him with kindness, but the South Pole was enough to actually kill him on its own. Scott and his group, they, they reached the pole on January 17th, obviously disappointed that Amundsen had been there a month before. And I got this from Encyclopedia Britannica. The weather on the return journey was exceptionally bad. Evans, one of the group, died at Beardmore on February 17th. Food and fuel supplies were low. At the end of his strength and hoping to aid his companions by his own disappearance, Oates, another member of the party, crawled out into a blizzard on March 17th. The three survivors struggled on for 10 miles, but then were bound to their tent by another blizzard that lasted for nine days. With quiet fortitude, they awaited their death only 11 miles from their destination. On March 29th, Scott wrote the final entry in his diary. Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent it remains a scene of whirling drift. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. On November 12th of 1912, searchers found the tent with the frozen bodies, geological specimens, Scott's records and diaries, which gave a full account of the journey. After his death, Scott was regarded as a national hero for his courage and patriotism, and his widow was given the knighthood that would have been conferred on her husband had he lived. Hmm. So this is a pretty frightening world we're entering into, and it has uh, brought a lot of explorers to their doom. We now get the introduction of our tale from a Richard Proctor. He's telling us the tale of Robert Drumgold and how he and two other guys, Eastman and Dahlstrom, found his mad writings in the tent. The story is a little confusing at the outset. It is. uh, I thought. Especially, you don't know what the relevance of the two quotes are even in the beginning. And then when it dives into this, you're like, okay, Proctor was on an expedition. He found these writings from Drumgold, who'd been on a previous expedition. Yeah. Called the Sutherland Expedition. Mm -hmm. Around the same time as Amundsen and Scott. But these are all different expeditions. (laughs) Anyway, Proctor and his two companions find Drumgold's writing in his tent, as you say. At first, they decide these are just crazy and they don't want to release them. So... Because they don't want to overshadow other accomplishments of that expedition. But now, uh, this is in the early 1920s, we're getting this account. Proctor is finally going to tell his tale, his tale, and also publish the tale they found in Drumgold's writing. It wasn't just the writings that they found. It was the severed head. The severed head of Drumgold. Right. That's right. He left behind a paperweight as well with the, with the writing. That was separate from his head. His head wasn't the paperweight. No. Oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> just making that clear. Yeah, They decided that dogs did this to him somehow, even though it didn't obviously look like a dog attack. All the flesh was still on the head. Mm-hmm. He seems to have gone mad before he died, at least according to this manuscript. Drumgold was part of the Sutherland expedition. There was another expedition that was headed by Captain Stanley Livingstone, uh, which was picking up where Darwin Frontenac's expedition left off. They seemed to discover something that they kept secret from the world at large. And here again, is a very, that's a very confusing paragraph. Oh my God. Yes. That's not real stuff. The author is actually referencing one of his other serials. Oh. So that's like a bit of world building. Oh. And again, I have to credit Bob Gay in that article for doing the research and figuring this out because it was driving him crazy as well. They reference these guys, Darwin Frontenac and Bond McQuestion, which is a huh. hilarious name. Bob found a synopsis for The Living Death, which was an earlier serial by Leahy, and he writes, It seems that The Living Death concerns a certain Captain Livingston who discovers that the South Pole has a tropical area behind all this ice and snow. And his two companions he takes on that trip are Frontenac and Bond. These are the same pair mentioned in this paragraph. I mean, you just assumed you know that for some reason? I don't know. that's weird. The reason that's there, it's this tropical area that he's referencing by saying that's what the Livingston expedition was about. They found this 
crazy thing out there. And it's caused people to reevaluate the mysteries of the Antarctic. And that's why now we've decided we should share the story of what we found on this expedition, the account of Robert Drumgold, which we previously had not disclosed. But it's because of that other Livingston expedition that we've decided we want to do this now. So that's an explanation of what's going on there. It was really confusing to me when I read it initially. Then we go into a more detailed scene. What was described is actually played out. Yeah, it's almost like Genesis in the Bible or something. They tell you the story in short, and then they tell it to you again. It's a longer version of the same story. Yeah. Because <laughs> we already know that they found the head. But I guess this is really, I would say, you could start here. This is really where the story starts. Yeah. And our guy says, how vividly it rises before me. Again, the white expanse, the dog straining in the harnesses, our sudden halt as Eastman fetched up in his tracks, pointed and said, hello, what's that? He recalls how they saw something in the distance and thought that it was a noon attack, which is exposed rock. It's an Inuit word, but it's a tent. says the snow lay piled about the tent to a depth of four feet or more. Nearby, a splintered ski protruded from the surface, and that was all. Poor devil, said Eastman at last. One thing, they certainly pitched their tent well, which it's, <laughs> it's been able to withstand this Antarctic uh, weather. So. Yes. When they approach, it's covered in snow, and they have to dig it out to get to the inside. There they find there are some empty supply boxes blocking the entrance. Proctor looks inside the tent first, which is surprisingly clear of snow. He screams and jumps out of the tent. Then he tells them that he saw a human head. They think it might have been the work of dogs or cannibalism. Uh, Looking at the head, Dahlstrom thinks that it was hacked off, not the work of dogs. But besides the head, they find Drumgold's notes in his journal. Yeah, I imagine it would be pretty easy to determine if it was hacked off or eaten off. Would look pretty different. So yeah, I I think think it it looks hacked off. They're just they're using the dog thing because they got to come up with some reason this happened. Right. He thinks, uh, enough of this, of what we thought and what we wondered. The journal itself lies before me, and I now proceed to set down the story of Robert Drumgold in his own words. Now we're going to get the story within the story. But this is a derelict tale. We've covered these kinds of things before. Yeah. William Hope Hodgson has uh, written some stories that we've covered like this. Characters discover something and wonder, what happened here? Right. This is present in all of these Antarctic stories, right? The three that we talked about. There's this background puzzle. Yeah. Something happened here, and then, of course, it's going to manifest and happen to you as well. But that's that's yeah. the foundation of a lot of horror-type films, the Alien yeah. series and the thing. Sure. And, and now we get into that. Drumgold's Journal, January 3rd, 15 miles from the South Pole. Only 15 miles more, and the pole is ours, unless Amundsen or Scott has beaten us to it or both. That was when it was finally clear to me, oh, this is a competing expedition to those. That's what this was all about. It's a bunch of dogs and three men, Drumgold, Sutherland, and Travers. It says all are in fine spirits. Even the dogs seem to know that this is a consummation of some great achievement. (laughs) I can only assume it seems this way because the dogs are looking through catalogs, picking out tuxedos. (laughs) He writes about Antarctica and how it is a glorious fairyland of white, blue, and violet. Fairyland? (laughs) Why has that thought so often occurred to me? Why have I so often likened this desolate, terrible region to fairyland? Terrible. Yes, to human beings it is terrible. Frightful beyond all words. But though so unutterably terrible to men, it may not be so in reality. After all, are all things, even of this earth of ours, to say nothing of the universe made for man, this being godlike spirit in the body of a quasi-ape who, set in the midst of wonders, leers and slavers in madness and hate and wallows in the muck of a thousand lusts, may there not be other beings, yes, even on this very earth of ours, more wonderful, yes, and more terrible, too, than he. He thinks of the words of uh, Alexander Winchell, an American scientist who 
who wrote, There may be intelligences corporealized after some concept not involving the processes of ingestion, assimilation, and reproduction. We talked about this kind of thing a lot. I mean, aliens, we we typically think of them as humanoid types. Yeah. Alien to us, but they could be, you know, like tardigrades that can consume almost anything. Don't need to function in the way that we do. Or they might not even be biological in the sense that we are as well. Exactly. Uh, he confesses that he sometimes feels an unseen presence watching them on their journey. They're making camp and will finish their journey in the morning. But there's no morning, really, because the sun is always up at this time of year. Mm-hmm. The next journal entry is the following day, January 4th. Something terrible has happened. But of course, we don't know what it is yet. He prays it was only a dream. He explains that morning they got up and set off for the pole. On their journey, they see a tent. Someone has beaten them to the South Pole, maybe? They get really bummed out about this. The clouds come out, and everything gets all gloomy. In all ways, I mean, seeing that tent is a really big bummer. And it's a very serious gloom. Up until now, as you mentioned, it's been nothing but sunshine. And he's made a big deal of that. But with the clouds, they completely obscure the sun, and suddenly the whole landscape becomes changed and ominous. It's almost like they've entered the shadow version of this bright Antarctic world they've been in. Mm-hmm. And Trevor's, he says, uh, what are we in for now? Meaning the weather's changing, so it could be dire. They decide to see if the tent is actually a tent or a Karen. When they whip the dogs to go in the direction of the tent, the dogs don't want to go. Come on, you mangy mutts, put those catalogs down. <laughs> they, Leave the formal wear for later. They get, they get the dogs going and they discover that it is in fact a tent. And there is a Norwegian flag with the word Fram on it. So it's Admondson's tent. The tent, however, bulges strangely to one side. And this would be the tent referenced probably in those opening quotes. Mm. This is not the tent where Drumgold's head was later found. No. I actually like the story a lot, but my only criticism is that it could be streamlined a bit to avoid confusion with this nesting story. Yes. But regardless, we can talk about that later. Regardless, they found this tent of Amundsen's. Yes. They deduce that the tent has been there for about a year and the entrance is tightly laced up. As they get closer to the tent, the dogs start to whine as if to warn them. Trevor says their senses are keener than ours. Sutherland thinks that they might be dead people inside, but Trevor says dogs wouldn't act that way if there was dead things in there. That's, you know, dogs don't care about dead stuff. A sweet cummerbund, perhaps. A ruffled (laughs) shirt, powder blue tails, maybe, but not a dead thing. Also, there aren't any sleds around. (laughs) Right. This, This doesn't seem like there's a good explanation for this mystery. Just as they're about to open the tent, a beam of sunlight pierces the gloom and lands on them. They remark at how queer this place is. It's like a spotlight has been suddenly thrown on the scene and their discovery here will play out like a staged drama. It's all eerie timing. And it's a little like I was at House of Blues once and I knew one of the stagehands and he let me throw the spot when Morris Day and the Time were playing. Bam! (laughs) I hit Morris perfectly my first time doing it. And so if you can imagine that and that experience, this is a little like that, what happens to them here. But scary instead of dangerously funky. The casual way that you kind of threw that off I think most people would believe that you actually did do that I did do that you actually did that that's a true story in Hollywood for a company called express.com we had a holiday party at House of Blues when it, it, it not long after it opened on the Sunset Strip uh-huh Boris Day in the time was playing at the party mm-hmm. it was a big dot-com party we, we were sharing it maybe with somebody else the guy who worked there who was the tech was Xander your buddy Xander Smith Xander Smith yes oh my of, god of other star people and many other bands yeah. And I was like, Xander, what's up? And he's like, hey, dude, I'm doing the lights. Come up here. And I was like, can I operate the spotlight? And he goes, yes. And he showed me what to do. All I really did was flip the switch. But I did it. Whoa. Bam. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I can't believe you never <laughs> told me that story. <laughs> and then, you know, I turned it on. And he was like, good job. And then I talked to him a little bit. And then I went back down to my party. 
Wow. That is crazy. Yes, that happened. It's a terrifying moment, actually. I shouldn't be screwing it up talking about Morris Day in the time. That place was our stage. Our light, the wrathful fire of the Antarctic sun. Ourselves, the actors, in a scene stranger than any ever beheld in the mimic world. For some moments, so strange was it all, we stood there looking about us in wonder. And perhaps each one of us in not a little secret awe. Queer place, all right, said Sutherland. But he laughed a hollow, sardonic laugh. Up above, the pennant flapped and flapped again, the sound of it hollow and ghostly. Again rose the long-drawn, mournful, fiercely sad howl of the wolf-dog. But, added our leader, we don't want to be imagining things, you know. Of course not, said Travers. Of course not, I echoed. A little space, and the entrance was open and Sutherland had thrust head and shoulders through it. Sutherland opens the tent and looks inside for a bit too long, and then he screams and falls out. They ask him what he saw. I can't tell you, I can't. Oh, oh, I wish that I had never seen it. Don't look, boys, don't look in that tent unless you're prepared to welcome madness or worse. It's a pretty serious reaction. I mean, he's totally lost it. And I gotta admit, we have done so many stories that use this mechanism. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't see what frightens the character. It's unnameable. But we know from the reaction, it's horrible. Yet I gotta say, once again, it got me. It was effective. Mm. He looked in that tent, and I'm like, what is in there? And You know, my imagination is way worse than anything that could be described. And I, I thought it was used effectively here. You don't seem to think so. Uh, no, it it is used effectively, but it's something that we've seen so much that for me it's kind of just treading old ground so yeah. i don't even though this story probably predates most of the things that i'm thinking of yeah it's right in the sweet spot of that but you're just kind of over it yeah i'm just kind of over it that's i right. understand well that. trevor scoffs and he says why are you freaking out over dead men and sutherland laughs maniacally dead men if twas only that is this the south pole is this earth or are we in a nightmare on some other planet thank god you two didn't look and then Travers just says, you know, I'm going to look. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not? Yeah, I, don't, I, I guess you just think that he's being silly. or. But I would think if you're traveling with this guy, you would know he's probably made of stern stuff and you would like, sure. you know, listen to him. But anyway. Well, I, I, at least our guy did the right thing. And he's like, I'll let him look. You know, yeah. And if I get if it, it's we'll use the democratic process, if both of these guys go crazy. Then maybe. Yeah. Well, Sutherland even tries to grab him and hold him back, but it doesn't work out. Our guy says, but I did not help him to hold Travers back for, of course, it was my belief that Sutherland himself was insane, nor did Sutherland hold Travers. With a sudden wrench, Travers was free. The next instant, he had thrust head and shoulders through the entrance of the tent. And then Trevor staggers out making deep sounds that can't be described. And I thought that was good. Yeah. Like just kind of. <sighs> kind of yeah, but they can't broke. it's not that it's something that you don't hear people make but it's kind of like that mm -hmm. sutherland takes him by the shoulders and travers just starts screaming and sutherland says i tried to warn you they talk about something not of this earth not of man and that the thing is dead or is it how could they know and just then that beam of light is gone and they are back in the gloom they agree that they are not alone what do you mean sutherland asked not alone how do you know that it did not come alone why, it is there inside the tent, but the entrance was laced from the outside. <gasps> the dogs start howling, and Travers threatens to kill it. Yeah, which uh, calms the dog down, and over the wind we hear the rustling of catalog pages. <laughs> I don't know why these dogs are all looking at tuxedos. But. 
Drumgold wants to know what they saw, but they say he doesn't want to know. He says, it can't be any worse than what I'm imagining. And they say, yes, it is. <laughs> Drumgold agrees not to look, even Lies. though he feels like a coward. Mm. Don't talk nonsense, Bob. There are things that a man should never know. And there are some things that a man should never see. That whore there in Edmondson's tent is both. Both. And again, we revisit that notion that once something is seen, one can't unsee it. So best to stay ignorant. Yeah. Generally, I like looking at messed up stuff. And I think we've talked about this before. But mm -hmm. there's a few things that I've seen that I wish I could unsee. And has subsequently taught me that sometimes I just go, nah, I don't need to see that. Yeah. I agree with your assessment that it's weird or crazy. Yeah. Trump Gold, I think in this particular circumstance, at my age, if I was a younger man, I would totally have looked. But Oh, no, of I'm course. I, just, I think I have to see that. Yeah. I can't not know what you guys are talking about. Like, it's kind of like when I went to go see The Passion of the Christ. Right, yeah. I went to see it just because everybody was talking. I didn't want to see it, but I thought I have to know what everybody else is talking about. Yeah, you didn't. It's just like that. <laughs> <laughs> so Drumgold thinks that there might be notes in there that can explain things, uh, but neither Sutherland or Travers will go back in the tent. Sutherland says they aren't going to tell anyone about this, one, because they couldn't handle it, and two, no one would believe them. But they should warn people because that thing in there did not come alone. How they know this, Drumgold can't say. They're crazy, and making sense out of a madman is a fool's game. There's no notion that whatever's in there is some ancient inhabitant of the Earth or any of the stuff from Mountains of Madness. I mean, this seem, they seem to feel pretty strongly that this is some kind of outer space alien. But, of course, they can't know that either. No. There's this part where Sutherland says maybe the other one or the others went back to Venus or Mars or Sirius or Algol. Okay, so they are aliens. But then, he, then it goes into this supernatural or hell itself or wherever they came from to get more of their kind. And if they do, heaven have pity on poor humanity. So he believes that this is going to be some kind of invasion force based on what they've seen in this tent. Or something else entirely, like the gates of hell are opening up and you know, demons are going to crawl across the planet. Who, who knows? Right, because they speculate on that stuff as well, don't they? Travers thinks that they should just empty the rifle into it just in case, but probably it wouldn't do anything. Man, I wish I knew what they saw. It obviously suggested quite a lot. Yeah. And, you know, they say maybe it can't die. Maybe it only changes. Which is like, why would you get the impression that the thing only changed? What is it about it? Yeah. That stuff's pretty creepy, man. It's good. It's good because they're throwing out all this stuff. You think you get a handle on what they're talking about, but then they make a left turn and you're like, okay, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's something in there. Ugh. It's alien. It's really out there and different. So Travers goes to the sled and gets a gun. Sutherland says that they need to go. Travers ignores him and goes back to the tent. Travers blasts the gun off in a fast succession, not actually going inside. And then a sound comes out of the tent. A sound that no man had ever heard on Earth, one that I hope no man will ever hear again. So the men and the dogs all flee from the sound. Sutherland cries out, and they see the tent moving. This is a madness seized upon us, upon men and dogs alike. We know from Scooby-Doo exactly what that looks like. Yep. It talks about the tent as if it itself is a monster. Mm -hmm. you know, it says the tent was moving, it swayed, jerked like some shapeless monster in the throes of death, like some nameless thing seen in the horror of nightmare or limbed on the brain of utter madness. Mm. that's what they see before they split yeah when they fled they got lost so they aren't quite sure where they are they set up camp and just as Drumgold is writing this stuff down Travers pops his head into the tent saying that he saw something out in the distance and they are going to investigate the next entry skips a day so we go to January 5th they saw something move maybe the thing that was in the tent they aren't sure and then we skip ahead to January 6th these are all very short entries cover 25 miles the dogs are having it rough they think they're being followed January 7th, two of the dogs are gone, but they heard nothing. Travers seems to have totally lost his mind. January 8th, Travers is gone. He had the late watch taking over from Sutherland. That is when they last saw him. 
No tracks or anything. January 9. Saw it again. Why does it let us see it like this? Sometimes. Is it that horror in the Munson's tent? Sutherland declares that it is not. That it is something even more hellish. But then Sutherland is mad now. Mad. 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 If I wasn't sane, I could think that it was all only imagination. But I saw it. January 11. Think it is the 11th, but not sure. I can no longer be sure of anything, save that I am alone and that it is watching me. It is always watching. And sometime it will come and get me, as it got Travers and Sutherland and half of the dogs. Yesterday must be the 11th, for it was yesterday, surely it was only yesterday, that it took Sutherland. I didn't see it take him, for a fog had come up, and Sutherland, he would go on in the fog, was so slow in following that the vapor hid him from view. At last, when he didn't come, I went back, but Sutherland was gone. Man, dogs, sled, everything was gone. Poor Sutherland. But then he was mad. Probably that was why it took him. Has it spared me because I am yet sane? Sutherland had the rifle. Always he clung to that rifle, as though a bullet could save him from what he saw. My only weapon is an axe. But what good is an axe? January 13. Maybe it is the 14th. I don't know. What does it matter? Saw it three times today. Each time it was closer. Dogs still now. That sound again. But I dare not look out. The axe. Hours later. Can't write anymore. Silence. Voices. I seem to hear voices. But that sound again. Coming nearer. At entrance now. Now. that's the end of the story. Mm. And I guess it's likely that the thing used the axe to chop off Drumgold's head. Mm, yeah. Maybe right after he wrote that last sentence, like immediately after. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of conventional things in the story, at least story beats we're used to. Yeah. But I like it. I think it's effective. It's definitely weird. If you can get over the first part of the story where you're just trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Right. And pick it up with Drumgold's journal. I think it's a, it's a pretty good story. It's simple. I wish there weren't a tent within a tent, as you say. It's not it's not that hard to puzzle out, but I don't know. Maybe they could have found the head in the notebook somewhere else and started right there. Yeah. This, this does share a lot with Lovecraft's story, the notion of we've got to warn the world about it out here. Mm-hmm. I think between the three of them, I actually like who goes there the best. Yeah, me too. By Campbell. And also, I mean, we you talked about it briefly when we just did that summary, but uh, in those journal entries, there's dogs disappearing as well as humans in the last stretch of the narrative. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, you don't have to put this in the show, but don't let me forget to record a warning for the top of the show, letting folks know 
you know, there's some elements of the story that might be disturbing to dogs. <laughs> Maybe when those sections come up, <laughs> let the dogs outside. <laughs> From a formal wear catalog. <laughs> Don't let me forget to put that warning up at the top. That was an outstanding reading by Edward E. French. Yeah, he's great. Check out his full reading of this story on his YouTube page. We'll link out to it. Yes, it'll be in the show notes so you can hear him read this, as well as many other macabre tales. And I also want to thank some of our patrons for continuing to make this show possible. I want to thank Stratum. <laughs> That's a superhero name if I've ever heard one. I want to thank Scott Turley. I want to thank Rowan Willis. I want to thank Eric Johnson. I want to thank Nilesh Salvi. Greg Rusan. Thank you so much. Lizard Man, <laughs> you're the best. Wow, Lizard Man subscribes to the show. Oh, it's pretty exciting. Is yeah. he a lizard or a man? No! I'm a lizard man. <laughs> I want to thank Clara Boothby. Uh, I want to thank R. Charles Landon. And I want to thank Vivek Balasubramanyam. Thank you all so much for helping to continue to make the show possible. We love having you as part of the team. We hope that you will enjoy this month of April. We've got a lot of fun offerings for you. Coming up next, another Lovecraft favorite. It is The Bells of Oceana ah, by yes. Arthur J. Burks. So we're going to be covering that one. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.